What's up, guys? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave Martinson here with a bunch of stuff, honestly, to get into. A lot of fun stuff here. We talked about a bunch of movies, the Golden Globes that just happened, a TV show, as well as the best movies of 2022, the best movies of last year, my top 10. So check the time codes below for the movies. I talked about Women Talking, Sarah Polly's drama film, which is an awards contender. I talked about Corietta's Broker, which is an amazing Korean film. I talked about Star Wars The Bad Batch Season 2, the animated series on Disney+, Plus, the premiere that just came out. I talked about the 2023 Golden Globes and what those do and do not mean for awards season to come. And then I did my top 10 movies of 2022. So check the time codes below and let me know what you thought. What's up, guys? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a reaction to the 2023 Golden Globes. And most importantly, what these results do and do not mean for award season and the Oscars. So, a lot to get into, of course. A lot of nice wins. A lot of, actually, not really a lot of surprises. Honestly, we'll get into why that might be. And I think most importantly, what actually matters about the Golden Globes now versus what used to matter before and vice versa. So as the thing everyone knows, the Golden Globes did not happen last year. They did not happen in 2022. Uh, and a big part of that was the Hollywood Foreign Press Association finally got exposed out in the open with a lot of stuff that people knew for a long time, basically regarding their corrupt uh, voting practices, a very uh, undiverse voting body, uh, unethical action across and they were boycott and the hfpa has made some changes to how they operate and who their members are and the golden globes came back this year now i think what's important to note that everyone playing ball everyone in hollywood playing ball this time around with the golden globes is a self-serving thing it's not because anyone cares about the opinion of the hfpa notably no one who votes on golden globes votes on uh, the hollywood uh, Guild Awards or the Oscars. So there's no crossover there. This is really about movies that are in the awards mix at other shows being able to get that platform and market their movies awards campaigns. So I think it's just important to remember that that is why they're here. And for me, I'm only interested in, in, in what the Globes might mean for the rest of awards season, the award shows that I actually care about and put value in. So I think it's important just to note that, that no one actually cares about Winning Globes or the HFPA itself. So just to get that out of the way. So, uh, yeah. So what what happened last night? Uh, we had Gerard Carmichael hosting. I think he did a really good job. Uh, you know, coming off a big year with his feature film debut on the count of three, and of course his critically acclaimed uh, special Rothaniel to have him host. Nice high profile gig for him. Happy for Gerard. And right off the bat, he did what you kind of expected from Ricky Gervais the past few years with the Globes. He skewered the shit out of things. But most importantly, Gerard really was pointed and clear and direct about the problems with the HFPA and the problems with the Globes, and he did not mince his words. I think that was good to hear right off the bat. And then funny enough, from that from there on out, the Globes just kind of became a more standard award show, giving out awards. There weren't any bits. And they had the one Globes trademark still, which was that people got drunk, people were lit there, and it's just fun to watch famous people be together and have some of them be lit. So I enjoyed that. But yeah, let's just get into who won and what that might mean. So, of course, the Globes separate stuff between drama and comedy slash musical. So there's not a clear like fight between awards contenders often. It really depends on the category. 
but there's still some interesting things to point out here, and we'll see how this bears out with the Guild Award nominations coming out throughout the, the this week to come. So motion picture drama was won by the Fablemans, and motion picture musical or comedy was won by the Banties of Inishirin. Uh Banties, of course, beating everything everywhere all at once in that category. I think those are our three contenders there, but it's still hard to glean who you would give more uh, momentum to because it was not a head-to-head fight. Banshees has more awards juice down the ballot, and I think that is interesting, although Best Director was won by Steven Spielberg for The Fablemans. So I think we really need to just wait and see just a little bit more before we can put a handle on like who's out in front, and by no means do I want to uh, overrule everything everywhere all at once in the Best Picture mix. Let's see what happens with the PGA Awards, Director's Guild Awards. You know, Spielberg perhaps coming up and, and getting that Best Director frontrunner candidacy. That actually probably does track because it's hard to really think of something that would be against Spielberg with enough juice at this point. I don't think the Daniels with Everything Everywhere or McDonough with Banshees. I don't think we've seen that yet. And I don't know like what else could maybe happen unless like James Cameron for Avatar was to like really explode. And we'll see because the Avatar impact has uh, basically happened after all this awards voting and the early going has happened. So maybe maybe that could that could change. Obviously the Oscars aren't until uh, you know the end of March. It's still a long, long road ahead. But we'll see. Uh, moving down to the acting categories. We have uh, Actress, again, another one of the like big fights that is just not head-to-head because the way the Gold Globes does things. Cate Blanchett wins for Tar with Best Actress Drama, and Michelle Yeoh wins for uh, Best Actress Musical or Comedy for Everything Everywhere. Those are considered the two favorites, but they did not actually go head-to-head here. I think we would still lean Cate Blanchett until proven otherwise. Uh, but yeah, there's really not much more you can say about that one yet. We have to see see more award shows uh play out uh best actor we had colin farrell win for musical comedy for banshees and then uh probably most notably of all we had austin butler win for elvis in actor drama over brendan fraser in the whale uh side note it is funny that elvis was ran as a drama at the globes when they literally have a category for a musical or comedy uh shows though i think how confident the Elvis, you know, awards campaign is in like their their awards prospects. And I think Butler beating Brendan Fraser in The Whale is a big sign to that candidacy. And I would still peg that as our big three. And we need to see more though. We need to see Farrell and Butler go head to head. We need to see if Fraser can uh win somewhere else. Of course Fraser was not in attendance at the Globes and was boycotting this, at least, you know, personally boycotting this ceremony due to his previous negative experience with the HFPA. So it's a muddy picture, best actor. So again, we just need to see more with that. But the Austin Butler uh, campaign, I think, is very real. The biggest talking point, perhaps, of the whole night was that Austin Butler seemingly just does the Elvis accent now. That is just a part of his being. And that is hilarious. But he's also a very charismatic man. So we'll see if that uh, continues to work for him on the trail. Again, we have to we have to see more. Uh, then supporting, I think, is a uh, honestly a lot less um, surprising, and probably just a, a straight up forecaster at this point. Supporting actress, uh, and, and the Globes don't 
differentiate comedy or drama with supporting roles for some reason. Very weird thing they've always done. Supporting actress was Angela Bassett for uh, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, which feels like the winner. This feels like kind of a coronation year for Angela Bassett after a you know 30-year career of being great. And it just doesn't seem like there's a lot of juice behind, or enough anyway, behind the people that she's kind of going up against, whether that's Carrie Condon and Banshees, Jamie Lee Curtis and everything everywhere, uh, Perry Mulligan, as she said, uh, Dolly De Leon and Triangle of Sadness. We'll see if other people fit into that mix. But unless Banshees has like an amazing night at the Oscars and Carrie Condon wins, I have a hard time seeing anything else really getting in Bassett's way. But again, we'll see what happens moving forward. And then Best uh, Supporting Actor is perhaps the lock of all locks at this point, which would be Kihi Kwan for Everything Everywhere All Once, beating Brendan Gleeson in Banshees, as well as Barry Keown in Banshees. The, this narrative, the story for Kihi Kwan, the return to Hollywood uh, after such a long time, not acting, and then to do it in a movie that has such a warm message with an amazing performance from, from Kwan, but it's just, I think it's just kind of the perfect uh, coalescence of narrative and feeling and uh, audience uh, reception that, like, I mean, again, unless Banshees has an amazing night and Brendan Gleeson was to win this, I don't really see how anything could get in Kihi Kwan's way. And it would be an amazing win, too, because if you expect Yo to lose to Blanchett in Best Actress and maybe Everything Everywhere All Once does win Best Picture, this would still be a really top prize and a justly earned one at that for a amazing movie that had a uh, year that no one would have uh, foreseen, you know, before Everything Everywhere All Once came out. And so that would, that would be cool. Uh, you know, Best Screenplay which again is not differentiated by ad- adapted or original here at the Globes, weirdly, went to Martin McDonough for Banshees and Nishiran. That's McDonough's trademark. As a writer, the writing, the screenplay of Banshees is perhaps the biggest strength of all that it has, You know, the, the paragon of its uniqueness. So that's a really just win. We'll see what happens uh, with the Writers Guild and other award, award shows to follow if see that continues. Justin Hurwitz won for Fablemans with score. Sounds like a pretty safe bet. Uh, that's a really big score, and Hurwitz has been awarded before, so keep an eye on that one. And then uh, Best Original Song, I think, is pretty interesting because it went to Natu Natu from RRR over you know lots of famous people, right? Taylor Swift, uh, Rihanna, Lady Gaga. That's like super cool, and like maybe it's a sign that RRR has more momentum as a movie that uh, didn't make the Best International Feature Film shortlist at the Oscars, but it's a movie that has a ton of goodwill. Uh, at the Oscars and you know the, the rare Indian film to really cross over into uh, you know Western cinema, so that's at least a nice nod to that movie. And that song is awesome. And that's importantly a song in a specific part in the movie that actually makes like a real impact on the movie. So I think it's one of the rare best original song winners that actually like makes an impact uh, to the movie and is super super earned. Uh, and that's really the the gist of it for movies. I mean. Del Toro's Pinocchio won animated feature. That seems like the lock of locks at this point. Uh, motion picture, not English language, which is what the Globes calls best international feature film, notably went to Argentina in 1985, a film you can watch on Amazon Prime right now. It did not go to All Quiet on the Western Front, the German uh, remake of the cla- war, war film classic that's on Netflix. And that's notable because All Quiet on the Western Front like cleaned up at the Oscar shortlist with a lot of nominations, more than was expected. But to not win here at the Globes is at least interesting. So we'll keep an eye on that and see if uh, 
Argentina in 1985 can keep this up in that mix. And it is a very competitive field for international film. So we'll see uh, what happens with that one. And then TV, obviously TV is always a weird aspect of the Globes because this happens like six months after or, or, or four, five months, four or five months after the Emmys happen. So the uh, eligibility period is different. You have people that already won Emmys, like uh, Amanda Seyfried in The Dropout, for example, the Better Call Saul people. And then you have shows that were in the previous Emmy period and actually get to win their first awards at the Globes. And then when the Emmys happen again in September, they'll win again and it'll feel late. Uh, stuff like Jeremy Allen White winning for The Bear, for example. So I don't really put much stock in the TV stuff with the Globes. Just cool to see, I guess, TV people mix, mixing it up with uh, movie people, I suppose, when you watch the broadcast. But uh, happy to see Jeremy Allen White win for The Bear. Uh, happy to see House of the Dragon win for drama. That's fun. Um, Abbott Elementary, Quinta Brunson, no surprises there. White Lotus winning for anthology series. Very cool. Uh, Coolidge winning again for White Lotus season two. Great. Yeah, but really not, not a lot of surprises there with, with TV. So we'll see what happens with the awards film nominations. I'll be talking about the Oscar noms and giving my predictions for those next week. So make sure you subscribe for that. And when the Oscars come around, I'll be doing my predictions and reactions to the Oscars as well. So make sure you subscribe and I'll see you next time. What's up, guys? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Star Wars The Bad Batch Season 2, talking in the first two episodes of the premiere. Been a minute since The Bad Batch was back. Uh, season 1 ended, you know, end of the summer 2021. We thought it'd be back in 2022. There was a fall date. They delayed that. Now it's kicking off for a 16-episode second season in 2023 on Disney+. Plus. Uh, I like Season 1 quite a bit, so I was certainly looking forward to season two and i think this two episode premiere didn't do anything to change those feelings you know i think if you like the bad batch you're probably still on board for season two and i don't think you know there's any reason not to feel that way you know on the other hand if you're someone who isn't as invested in the star wars animation journey that many of us have been on for over 10 years at this point yeah it might not do as much for you but to me, The Bad Batch is really just an extension of Star Wars Clone Wars, you know? And getting that lore filled in week to week over arcs across a season, just really fulfilling and fun. Because again, as someone who's been invested in Star Wars animation for some time, that's just a rewarding thing. And Bad Batch Season 2, I think, it's probably not going to be a groundbreaking series the way like Star Wars Rebels is thought of you know and we're, this is the year we're getting the rebels story continued in live action on ahsoka on disney plus right we just had andor rapturously received mandalorians coming back march 1st even something super uh anticipated like obi-wan kenobi just happened bad batch you know it's not as a blockbuster as that other stuff but i think it's just kind of consistent and maybe that's familiar as well doesn't reach the highs of the other things but i I think it's just kind of a a comfort food vibe on the star wars storytelling side of things and that's why i've enjoyed it through season one and i'm expecting to continue to like it through season two you know season two premiere doesn't do a whole lot to change our characters and i think if anything 
there was to criticize about season one is that the the Bad Batch characters themselves are not men that go on like rich journeys. The characterization is pretty thin, and you know it's a animated children's show, so the writing is nothing spectacular either, right? I think the most untapped potential left on the Bad Batch would have to be Omega still, who on one hand can be an annoying adolescent character, but on the other hand, at least her journey, her arc, and how the Bad Batch play off her leaves some storytelling promise. So there's that, I guess. But yeah, the Bad Batch guys themselves, uh, they kind of are who they are at this point. I think in this season two premiere, Echo's desire to do more and being fed up with the progress the Empire is making and, you know, tightening their grip on the galaxy. That is at least tantalizing, right? The Echo character is certainly the richest of the Bad Batch, given his history on the Clone Wars. But, you know, Hunter, Hunter's still kind of the straight arrow guy, you know? So I don't think we're going to see too much rocking of the boat on that side of things. You just have to have to be, I think, enjoying when other things pop up, right? Like in season one, when we got the Rex introduced to us in the middle of the season on Brock. That was an amazing moment, right? Next thing you know, Cad Bane shows up. Really fun stuff. This season, it was cool in these first two episodes to go to Sereno, you know, go to Dooku's home planet and kind of see that aftermath, right, of what happened there after the Empire took over. And I think the best or most tantalizing lore stuff that the Bad Batch is continuing to give us probably had to be about you know, the fate of the clones, right? Obviously, the season one finale, we had orbital bombardment of Camino to Poker City sunk into the ocean, right? Big moment. It does seem like we're going to continue to see more of the Empire's transition away from clones, the reasonings behind that that's kind of suggested in the trailer uh, for season two regarding clones starting to question their Order 66 and authority and things like that. Exciting that we'll see Commander Cody uh, pop up on Bad Batch season two, as suggested in the trailer. Perhaps him and Rex would uh, come face to face once again. That would be exciting. But these are all things that are not actually the Bad Batch characters. So it's almost like the Bad Batch themselves are just kind of a group that transports us through the series, so we can meet people or go to places that we're actually more interested and invested in due to our previous experience with them than we happen to be invested in the Bad Batch people themselves. Is that a big issue? No, I don't think so. Because like I said, this is a show that's really for people already in the bag with Star Wars animation. But does it prevent the Bad Batch from being anything more than what it currently is? I think it does. And to me, that's okay. You know, it's not a big investment with the short episodes, even with a, you know, 16 episode season. And the little moments that pop up and the cameos and the, I just just find it really fun and, and, and enjoyable. You know, I'm really excited to see Gunji show up, as suggested in the trailer. Uh, he's alive, unexpectedly. Very cool. Again, a nod from the Clone Wars. That's, like, really exciting. And if you don't recognize that reference, that doesn't mean a lot to you. So, yeah, I think ultimately this is a show for people in the Star Wars animation bag. So let me know what you thought of this premiere. Did it drastically change your opinion of the Bad Batch? Did it make you more excited? Or are you just happy? Happy it's back and happy to sit with it week to week like me. Leave a comment. Let me know what you thought. And for more Star Wars, more TV, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here talking Women Talking. New awards movie out in limited release. 
first film from Sarah Polly in over 10 years, starring a lot of big-name actors, Francis McDormand, Rooney Mara, Jesse Buckley, Claire Foy, Ben Whishaw. Movie that's got a lot of acclaim ever since it came out of Telluride. It was supposed to come out in December. It's only just now coming out in January. It'll, I think, go wide towards the end of the month, so it, it's getting there. But it has been a lot of talk about this film as something that will be in the mix for Oscars, be in the mix for a Best Picture nomination, given the uh, early acclaim and the star power attached to it. And, you know, it's a movie that I don't think is for the faint of heart. It's definitely heavy subject matter. But if you can get past that, it is definitely an acting and writing showcase as a film and worth your time for sure. Uh, you know, just right off the bat, the movie really throws you right into uh, just how heavy it is. You know, you're set in 2010 at a, a Mennonite colony, and you quickly learn that this group of women have come together to decide the fate of the women at their colony because these women have learned that they have been repeatedly drugged and raped during the night by the men in their colony for an extended period of time. Right off the bat, just obviously heinous uh, stuff just to be presented with right in the open. And there's throughout the film brief like flashback scenes regarding specific characters where they kind of like realize what's happened to them waking up in the morning, really gut wrenching stuff. And of course this is ranged uh, across ages, both high and low. So it's just really, really difficult stuff. But the film quickly centers you with a few of these women in like the uh, second floor hayloft of a barn, you know, on, on the colony grounds and has almost like a theatrical stage play type vibe because we're largely set in that hayloft for the majority of the film. That's where most of the dramatic uh, things happen. And uh, also of note is that the film has a really stark, noticeable, like grayscale color grading over the lens, almost sucking the life out of the scenery you're watching, you know, kind of connecting thematically to how the women are feeling about the uh, uh, place they found themselves in, I guess you could say. And, you know, I, I wouldn't call it like the most cinematic uh, film ever, just because you're largely in that one place. It is a bit gray and drab intentionally. And it's really just about people talking about how they feel and what they want to do about their lives. And, you know, like I said, a bit of a, a theatrical stage play, theater play type vibe. I think you can get by that because, like I said, the writing and the performances are just quite superior. Uh, Rooney Mara, a bit more understated character. I don't think she makes quite as strong an impression as Jesse Buckley or Claire Foy do, who are more uh, rage-filled, uh, emotional characters, really kind of, I think, espousing the feelings that many in the audience, I assume, would have while watching the, the movie and watching these characters talk out uh, the pros and cons of what they could achieve by leaving this colony versus staying and forgiving the men. Uh, really, I think it puts the audience now, it puts the viewer through quite the up and down as these women talk their way through various conclusions before getting to the place they get to. Um, you know, I think you kind of almost go up and down with which character you're almost like rooting for to like win the argument, quote unquote, you know, um, Frances McDormand, obviously high profile, a uh, name to be attached in the film, but she's not actually in the movie nearly as much as two other of her, uh, 
peers as far as older women uh, actresses go. Uh, you have a lot more of Judith Ivy and a lot more of uh, Sheila McCarthy, who I think are both quite good. You know, not as famous actors as their younger uh, co-stars, but they're both quite good. And yeah, I think just really kind of, I think sitting with these characters expressing how they feel about something that on one hand is so heinous, but like these, you know, themes of uh, agency and protecting those you love are, are I think are quite familiar and, and, and universal. Uh, interestingly, you have Ben Wishaw's character here as like the, really the one male character in the whole film who is, I guess one, one of the good men, quote unquote, who is tasked to like record the minutes of the women's meeting and what they, what they decide because these women as a traditionalist Mennonite people can't read or write. Um, Wishaw, he's kind of like the Rooney Mara character who, and they're quite connected in the film where he's like super earnest, super soft-spoken, super nice. But I don't know if narratively his presence as like the good male character gets beyond that in terms of like achieving anything further on the dramatic side of things. I understand why he's there. Like the movie isn't trying to paint in like a broad brush in terms of how it talks about gender in this extreme situation. But Ultimately, I was more, I guess, interested in like spending time with Claire Foy, spending time with Jesse Buckley, whose characters I think just were a bit more interesting to me personally. But I think that would definitely be a piece of the film that would be perhaps up and down depending on the viewer. How did you feel about the Rooney Mara Ben Wishaw relationship, and how did you feel about Wishaw's character's kind of placement in the story overall? Uh, probably depends on the viewer there. Uh, yeah, I think the, one other note that I came up right away was obviously this is a movie that does very little to dissuade anyone from having negative feelings about uh, religious fundamentalism and traditionalism because of the uh, direness of this situation. This movie is fictional, set in 2010, but of course it is based on a, uh, adapted from a 2018 book, which was based off of a real life similar circumstance that happened at a Mennonite colony in Bolivia. So it's not like this completely came out of nowhere. Uh, yeah, I think I, I wouldn't say it ends in like the most rapturous way ever, but I think if you take a step back and think about how it ended and how it was telling its story the whole time, it does make sense. It does feel, I think, thematically complete, but perhaps not reaching like the highest of the highs the way you might expect from other movies that are in like a best picture uh, awards race so definitely i think definitely worth the uh watch because the writing and the acting together really push the movie forward and that's why you should check it out so when we're talking let me know what you thought did you like the grayscale visuals did you love ben wishaw's presence in the film who was your favorite performance in the movie leave a comment below let me know and for more movie reviews subscribe and i'll see you next time What's up, guys? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Hirokazu Koreeda's Broker, new film that I adored. Want to get into why I love this movie so much. It's really tremendous. And I've really been anticipating this movie. Uh, Koreeda's 2018 film, Shoplifters, which won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, I loved. Thought that was tremendous. That movie got a lot of attention, a lot of love. And Broker, his second film since then, uh, is a Korean film. Korea, of course, Japanese, but this is a Korean film set in modern day Korea. And man, this has a lot of those shoplifters vibes. 
in terms of very familiar themes and characters, uh, you know, chosen families, people on the edge of the law, things like that. Very familiar in a great way if you're a fan of shoplifters. And honestly, I thought it was just a really warm, melancholic, kind, and moving film. And I was so happy. I saw I've really been waiting for this to come out. I mean, it came out, you know, last summer in Korea after premiering at Cannes 2022. So it's been a while to get to a U.S. release with Neon, but it's finally here. And yeah, I mean, I think right off the bat, obviously, uh, Song Kang-ho is like the big acting star. He's the name, right? People know him from his Director Bong collaborations, most recently, of course, in Parasite. And he won Best Actor at Cannes for this role in Broker. And he is predictably really great. He has, uh, you know, I think a strong presence as an actor in terms of giving you a uh, comedic performance when the role requires that, but also has a lot of heart, a lot of uh, kindness, and also a lot of anguish that he can really give you as an actor. Just a total talent, as people know, and he's really great in this movie. And he plays uh, Sang Hyun, who is one of the titular brokers. Him along with his friend uh, Dong Su, played by Gang Dong Wang, they are illegal brokers, people who take uh, unwanted children and sell them to people who are trying to adopt a kid, but also you know avoid the bureaucracies and the legalese of the legal adoption process. Um, and what happens in, in Broker early on here in Busan is a young mother... Uh, so Young, played by Lee Ji Hyun, aka the K-pop star IU. Uh, so Young puts her uh, n- newborn Wu Song puts her newborn in a baby box at a church, a place to give an unwanted kid into the care of the church. Usually leads to an orphanage. Maybe that kid will get adopted one day. It's a thing. And our two brokers kind of take the kid from the box and wish to sell him off. And to them, you know, they're they're being altruistic. They're finding people that want this kid. And, of course, they charge a fee, so everybody wins. And what's really cool about this movie is So Young uh, kind of catches up to them early on and kind of joins uh, the brokers on the road as they seek to find a buyer for this kid. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting. This is a movie effectively about, like, well-intentioned, child trafficking because it technically is trafficking right but to have the mother be there with these brokers who are trying to find the right fit for this kid they're not just giving him to the first person who wants him they're they're, they're trying to find someone genuine and also not get lowballed with the price too it's very interesting and the, that, that that dynamic that forms early on is really cool and at the same time these brokers are being watched by these two female cops who are kind of on the on the run, or, or, or on the on the trail of these brokers trying to catch them in the act? So this becomes a very quickly an elaborate road movie as we leave Busan and we travel throughout, uh, you know, Greater Korea via car, and you have these cops kind of tailing them as well. And there's almost like a buddy cop dynamic with them in the car. Very interesting, very fun, and you know, I think the next best piece about this is that very quickly once we hit on the road. With the broker and So Young, brokers and So Young, we go to an orphanage, and that's where uh, Dong Su actually is from. He is an orphan himself. You see all these kids, 
and you meet some people that Dong Sung knew back in the day. And once they leave the orphanage, uh, a kid from the orphanage, uh, Hyjin, uh, you know, like a, like an eight-year-old, he uh, stows away in their car. And like this ad dynamic of this like thrown together family, and I think it's a it's a it's like a real blast to kind of be with them. The movie never gets like overly like melodramatic or overly sentimental. I think the way it builds and it doesn't have like a clean ending by any means, but the way it builds, I think, is really satisfying just because it feels really warm. Um, you know, just the themes of like you know community and uh, loneliness versus abandonment and those kind of things. The movie really, I think, progresses through that point. And Corrieta, to his credit, handles very, you know, sad, difficult, complicated themes without getting too preachy, without getting uh, too melodramatic. And I think that's what's so great about this, the way it was so great in Shoplifters, where he's able to, I think, kind of give you a lot. And he doesn't really moralize either. Of course, we're talking about a mother giving away her child. Uh, abortion obviously would come up in this context as well. And there's not really a judgment passed on from the point of view of the film broker, which I think is important as well. These things are complicated enough that you're kind of just left to sit with everything as you go on this journey with these characters. But the characters are richly drawn enough and richly acted enough that everything kind of works out by the end in a really uh, satisfying way. I have to say, too, um, yeah, uh, Lee Jian-yeon, who plays So-young, uh, really great performance. You know, I know IU in addition to being K-pop star, has been an actor for a long time, but she really carries the the film as a uh, softer-spoken mother figure who, of course, is much more mysterious in the beginning of the film. But ultimately, that performance really grounds the film and help, helps propel it forward. And without that performance working, Broker probably wouldn't work as well. So really hats off to her for being not a full-time actor. I think she really crushed it uh, in this role. There's just a lot of funny moments, too. Like, there's a moment in the car wash... There's a moment with a Ferris wheel. Broker, despite having a lot of difficult stuff uh, at the center of it thematically, has some really choice humor throughout that really, really lands. And I, I saw in the theater, and there was not a lot of people in the theater with me, but there was a lot of laughs at those moments. They all, they all really hit, which was great. Uh, yeah, I would say definitely seek out Broker. Obviously, create a movie. Should go out saying you got to see it, but. Uh, I think this is a complete gem. Notably, it's not an Oscar mix. Uh, Japan and Korea both submit different movies. Of course, Korea submitting a decision to leave. So it's not an Oscar mix for Best International Feature. But and God, I love it can. And I think, obviously, people know to check this out. And I assume that Broker, in the years to follow, will have a, a long life in terms of like a, you know acclaimed international cinema, as you'd expect, coming from Korea. And we know his next film, uh, he will be returning to Japan, which is exciting. So check out Broker. Uh, leave a comment. Let me know what did you think of the movie. Are you excited for Korea's next film? And for more movie reviews, uh, subscribe because I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here talking best movies of 2022. Yes, my 10 best movies of last year. You might be wondering why is he doing a movie's top 10 in 2022 and 2023? Well, I had to see. The last few things that I knew I needed to see, you know, those limited releases in January, <clears throat> had the way for them to come out before I could confidently do the top 10, just to be sure. But I've seen everything I've wanted to see. I see about 100 movies a year, every year, so I feel like I have a well-rounded view. But, you know, you got to make sure you get in the heavy hitters that take a while to come out. 
And, you know, I think overall it was an interesting movie year. I would say overall a down movie year. A lot of uh, adult films certainly struggle at the box office. That's been a big talking point for a while now. But there was just a, a lack of movie product this year compared to pre-pandemic years. Just less movies out, less notable movies. Out. Not that there wasn't plenty of great stuff that came out across the globe. Obviously, that is the case. But hopefully, we will be seeing a recovery in the next year, the next two years. Um, obviously, another big part of this was the streaming uh, push with movies coming out on streaming and theatrical windows continuing to decrease. And then, of course, the second half of the year with the economic pushback on that and kind of reversal of a lot of those strategies and the uh, new belief once again in the theatrical movie going in terms of making true profits in the business. So there's a lot in flux in terms of the industry side of things. But when it comes to just talking films, I still quite like my top 10 that I have here. So I'll just jump right into it, the top 10 films of 2022. Number 10, I'll start with a movie that I really never expected would uh, would get here, and that would be Bodies, 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 the A24 black comedy horror film from uh, Helena Arasian in her uh, English language debut. Not really a horror movie, more of a horror comedy, more of a lampooning of like slasher genres, like taking what Scream does to the nth degree and not really being a horror movie. But man, I thought the tone in this film was just so great. One of the really few films that I think was actually in touch with how Gen Z people talk and interact with the world, and interact with culture. I thought so much of that stuff was just so funny. And of course, it's loaded with tons of like t top talent. Amanda Stenberg, Maria Bakalova, Rachel Sennett, Mayala Harold. I mean, they're all you know obviously very in demand young actresses still rapidly rising, and they're all excellent in this role. You know, a movie about a bunch of uh, young kids that have a party at a house during a storm, and then obviously uh, somebody dies and hijinks ensue. Familiar trope, but man, I think it's executed on so well. Of course, you have Pete Davidson kind of playing himself, playing that like scumbro persona. You have Lee Pace as the oldest person on the cast, kind of leaning into his Tumblr uh, appeal, as it were. <clears throat> Man, I think it's just really funny and has a lot of like amazing quotes. Of course, Rachel Sennett podcasting is very hard. Uh, I'm a Libra moon, like so many laugh out line, laugh out loud lines. But the twists and turns of the movie are just a just a real blast, a real thrill. And wanted to kind of get that in here as a bit of an unconventional pick, I suppose, for a top ten. Coming in at number nine for me is R R R the Indian, uh, Telugu specifically, uh, blockbuster film from SS uh, Rajmuli. Man, speaking of unexpected surprises, you've probably have seen RRR in a lot of uh, American lists. You know, the rare Indian film to truly break through in uh, Western Western cinema. And yeah, uh, to put to be to be brief, a film about Indian revolution against the British Raj. You know during the early 20th century and you have these two uh, key characters beam and uh, Raju based off uh, real people and the reason RRR is on my list is because it's basically like an amazingly satisfying execution of many genres at once it's a big blockbuster movie with big 
big set pieces and effects. Not the best effects you've ever seen, but very confident, coherent special effects, big action sequences. It's an amazing buddy movie slash friendship movie between Beam and Raju, these two people that find themselves on different sides of the conflict revolution in uh, the British Raj in India. Uh, it's an amazing musical movie with uh, an amazing like dance battle sequence that and that that song is currently nominated for best original song at the Oscars. Music, friendship, blockbuster, romance. It just weaves so many, I think, really familiar but executed on perfectly themes with this big rousing story that's also about like, you know, the the defeat of colonialism. Like there's so much going on with this movie that makes it so so lovable. But also I mean like I think like watching this film, watching these characters go through their journey, and then once they realize the truth about who each other is, how those things twist and, and flip, and really just the continued ups and downs dramatically over the course of RRR, uh, I think it has the viewer very invested. And that's why it, it's just so satisfying. It's just a big movie that really kind of nails this uh, earnest tone, but doing that across so much genre, so so big, so expansive. And uh, Raj Mooli deserves just so much credit for just how, I think, how big and, and, and satisfying this, this film, RRR, really is. You can watch it on Netflix. Uh, funny enough, if you watch it on Netflix, it's not in its original language. The Telugu dub was actually sold. Uh, the, you know, the, the rights was sold, distribution rights were sold elsewhere. So you only can actually watch it in Hindi, even though that's not actually the language the actors were speaking. It's a different dub. Um, that minor hiccup aside, I think RRR is perhaps the biggest like surprise of the year and absolutely worthy. That's why it's my number nine. Coming in at number eight for me is Triangle of Sadness, Ruben Ostlin's black comedy film from Neon that won the Palme d'Or at Cannes earlier last year. And, you know, Ruben Ostlin, a pretty well-known uh, you know, Swedish filmmaker at this point with a lot of uh, attention and love across the globe. But Triangle of Sadness, of course, just being his next movie would have had a lot of eyeballs. But I really enjoyed this movie because I thought the the commentary that this movie is interested in, uh, on its face, it's pretty uh, familiar, right? It's 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 broadly a eat the rich type story. But man, I just thought the humor in Triangle of Sadness was really well executed on. I think the three-act structure with three distinct acts in the movie actually did the film a lot of a lot of good because you kind of like kept advancing the thematic ideas of the film across each very distinct act. You know, act one uh, is like a lampooning of, you know, social media influencers and model culture and things like that, where you get introduced to Harris Dickinson and Charlie Dean's characters. I think they're both tremendous in the film. Act two, once we get to the, you know, the luxury yacht, it starts to get a bit more uh, meta about its uh, societal commentary about like what wealth inequality, things like that. And of course, act three on the, uh, on the beach, as it were, the introduction of Dali de Leon's character, an amazing performance, um, kind of flips everything you'd seen before on its head in terms of the, the social dynamics that have been at play in the film. So I just think that journey that you go on in this movie, ripe with like some really funny commentary, plenty of good jokes. I mean, Act 2 is littered with literally like like body humor stuff, which may not be for everyone, but I thought was really funny. Uh 
I couldn't help but just really, really enjoy like the journey of this film. You know, the Woody Harrelson character, who's the boat captain in Act Two, probably the least effective of like the main cast members. Just kind of a guy who just kind of waxes on about his Marxist beliefs, but doesn't really get beyond the surface of what where it's going. You know, I think to some maybe Triangle of Sadness doesn't cut deep enough or doesn't tread any new ground. But for me, I just thought it was still just still just quite enjoyable enough, just kind of being with these three distinct acts, being with these strong performances, and seeing like this commentary acted acted out well um, and executed on, I thought well enough. So Triangle of Sadness, I thought it was pretty enjoyable. You can watch that. Eventually, it'll be on Hulu as a neon film. All right, coming in number seven for me is Top Gun Maverick. Man. Had so much hype for this movie, so many delays, COVID delays, production delays, but the second Top Gun movie, Tom Cruise on a huge heater, making the best Mission Impossible movies of his career, being bigger and badder, the only way he knows how to be an actor, and we get Top Gun Maverick, and it delivers in unbelievable fashion, and the biggest movie of Tom Cruise's career as a result, the second biggest movie of 2022, uh, just a honestly a miracle of a movie uh better than the first top gun in basically every way um a th- absolute thrill right joseph kaczynski brings i think amazing and uh, at this point underrated filmmaking to the to the fore with this movie you know the the logistical challenge of filming like real choreography in in fighter jets up in the sky the fact that they pulled this off and it looks as amazing as it does just completely blowing away the standard for like dog fighting on screen spectacular but the emotional beats are are spectacular you wouldn't have thought this from Cruz, who is i think a bit limited or at least a bit uninterested in this sort of thing at this point in his career you can look at you know the love interests quote unquote across the mission impossible films for example but to have jennifer Connolly seamlessly enter the four as the admiral's daughter someone who's always been there but we haven't seen until now the the chemistry that they have is incredibly palpable and Connolly is tremendous in, in a nothing part to be clear, but like that just gives so much more to the Maverick character. And the, and I think really uh, benefits uh, Cruz's turn in the movie. And yeah, in a sense you play back some of the hits with, with uh, the first Top Gun, but when you're doing it with Miles Teller as Goose's son with Glenn Powell being himself in an amazing manner, uh, it's just so satisfying. And uh, I mean, at the end of the day, the action sequence is completely rip, uh, just super thrilling. Of course, the third act is completely unbelievable, but you don't care because you're just invis- invested in this movie and how propulsive it is. I mean, right off the bat, when you have like the Blackbird sequence, I think is absolutely thrilling and introducing you into this character who is fixated on a certain idea of what he wants to be. Uh, very emblematic of Tom Cruise himself, to be honest. Um, honestly, the way Top Gun Maverick like lived on throughout the course of the summer into the fall this year, I think just really speaks to how much it really resonated with people as just an amazing time that is super rewatchable already, but also has like I think just enough under the hood in terms of like making you feel uh, things that. It's really one of those rare blockbusters that's just a true gem. So it's certainly increased the hype for Mission Impossible 7, Dead Reckoning. Um, The trailer for that movie suggests that Tom 
Cruz is getting even more brazen with stunts as he enters uh, his 60s, which is unbelievable and scary and unsettling. But no matter how much longer he has left making these kinds of movies, I mean, the fact that Maverick turned out as as great, as propulsive, as thrilling as it is, I think is a testament to Cruz, a testament to Joseph Kaczynski. So, I mean, I don't know how you could not have Top Gun Maverick uh, on a list this year. Coming in number six for me is The Banshees of Inishirin, Martin McDonough's drama film starring Colin Farrell, Brendan Gleeson, Carrie Condon, Barry Keown. You know, coming off three billboards, I think Martin McDonough's stock was low. I certainly did not miss that discourse regarding that movie during award season. But McDonough, I think, really bounced back. You know, I think, importantly, getting back across the pond to a world he knows best, uh, getting back to the type of writing that I think kind of suits him as an Irishman. And in the process, you have a movie that I think perplexes a lot of people as you begin to watch it, but does not escape your brain because you can't help but really dwell on what this movie means and how it makes you feel long after you've seen it. I think Banshees, which is certainly in the best picture mix at this point, uh, really makes you think a lot, you know? Like, just the very simple premise of Brendan Gleeson's character, uh, Colm, being like, I just don't like you no more, as his justification for wanting to break off his friendship with Colin Farrell's character. And watching what happens subsequently as Colin Farrell's character, Podrick, just is like unable to accept the ending of this relationship that he had. Uh, and that's relationship in quotes, depending on who you ask. But like seeing the back and forth they have feels so unconventional, but also like so unique and so fully realized. The performances, of course, really sell all of this, but the movie doesn't go in a direction you expect it to. But the performances and really the writing, McDonough's writing, uh, I think really sell all of this. Carrie Condon, as Padraig's sister, is the heart of the film, to be honest, and really, I think, kind of keeps it all together. She's tremendous. Then Barry Keown, who I think everyone has been in on for some time, he's just had great role after great role. And perhaps this is the greatest role yet, as him kind of being the the, the village idiot in a certain sense, the um, the one who didn't meet his potential or the one no one no one believes in kind of deal. And him, his friendship with Padraig, who's just, you know, a nice but but dimmer person, it is tremendous. And then Keown, I think, is able to really kind of sell the later dramatic turns uh, in the movie. And... Once you see what happens in Banshees, I think you're just kind of sat there thinking about how you would have acted in that situation, what McDonough's trying to get at in terms of how he speaks about friendship, one of the most unique films about friendship I've ever seen easily. Of course, it's set on uh, one of the Irish islands, and it looks absolutely amazing. You're on the coast the, the entire time. <laughs> and I think what the movie has to say about the, um, the troubles happening over in the mainland of Ireland at this time in the movie what the movie has to say about how these characters feel about this conflict that feels like a world away across the water, I think is also quite smart and how like that big conflict is juxtaposed with this minuscule conflict between these two people in this little tiny farm town, I, I think is really lands as executed on incredibly well. Um, I'd be very curious to see exactly how well Banshee's finish does at the Oscars. I'd expect 
multiple acting nominations at this point. Colin Farrell is perhaps the chief contender for best actor alongside Brendan Fraser in The Whale. So we'll be seeing about how far that can go. And then Banshee's Vinishir in itself seems like it's one of the top best picture contenders. Certainly I'd put it in like the top three right now, depending on how things are going. And I'll be getting to another movie I think is right in that mix later. Um, so yeah, Banshee's Vinishir in, man. Uh, Martin McDonough really bounced back and Colin Farrell had an amazing year between his performance in Kogan's After Yang, his amazing <laughs> prosthetic-induced performance of as the Penguin in The Batman, and then topping it all off with the Banshees in Ashiran as Padraig. Uh, Farrell, you know, post like stardom turn, you know, over a decade ago, he's really settled into just being a character actor, doing like real convincing and inspired character work. And I'd be rooting for him to take on the Oscar gold because I think he's really earned it as he's kind of shifted his career in, I think, a really exciting way. And coming in at number five for me is the most recent movie I've seen on this list, and that would be Corrieta's new drama film, Broker. Uh, Broker just came out in limited release in the U.S. in January. Of course, came out back in the summer in South Korea after premiering at Cannes, where uh, Song Kang-ho won uh, Best Actor at Cannes. And Corrieta is a filmmaker who I got really attached to after 2018 Shoplifters, one of my favorite movies of that year, one of my favorite movies of the last decade, to be honest. And the reason Broker is so high on my list, despite seeing it so recently, is because Broker, I think, imbues a lot of those familiar feelings that you get from Shoplifters. This is a Corrieta, Japanese filmmaker, making a movie in Korea this time with Korean actors, but the, the themes are so familiar in terms of chosen family and being on the edge of the law and the way Corriedo famously at this point has is handling really heavy and difficult and layered themes, but doing it in a really tender and warm way. It's difficult subject matter, but the movie itself is not difficult to be with. And that that's probably like his ongoing like trademark as a filmmaker at this point. In the case of Broker, um, the simple premise of a young mother leaves her baby in a baby box at a church uh, you know, to abandon uh, into the care of the church. And that baby then in turn gets picked up by these brokers who want to sell it to people who want to adopt a kid through extra legal means. But the key twist in broker right away is that the mother's actually going to find this out. It's going to join the brokers on their journey to uh, find a, a cr the correct home for this kid. That is like a very complicated scenario to be in, in terms of like, a mother kind of condoning the trafficking of her kid, even if it's through well-intentioned means. And in the process, you get this movie that has a lot going on to it, right? Like it very quickly becomes a road film, but I just think the the character dynamics on Bro in Broker are very well done. The uh, handling of really difficult stuff is done really good. And like that really kind of builds across the movie. There's a young young child who's introduced to this crew joins them on their journey as well in the process you get a lot of choice humor sprinkled out throughout a movie that otherwise wouldn't have a whole lot of levity in terms of what it's handling but those laugh lines really work uh at the same time we have uh, police officers on the tail of these brokers and this crew the movie kind of gets to this really big crescendo but it doesn't have a neat ending and man i just found it incredibly satisfying, incredibly moving. And I think just the warmth that Corey brought to this kind of story uh, is what really sits with me 
about Broker, and that's why I really liked it. Um, and obviously, a lot, a lot of people have seen it in the States at this point, but I would absolutely recommend people check it out when they can. It is a neon release, so it will eventually get to Hulu. That might be the place most people see it, but Broker, number five for me. All right, to my number four now, I think that my big four are like the movies I love the most uh, this year, and I think I feel really tight. It's like this is like a top tier for me is this, this big four. And the number four, I have Nope, Jordan Peele's third feature film, hotly anticipated, certainly by me. Uh, people know the legacy at this point between Get Out and Us, and Nope was definitely not the movie um, I think people expected it to be, but I thought it was absolutely thrilling and breathtaking the entire time, and I have a lot of admiration for what Nope is and what Nope isn't, and Peel as a filmmaker at this point is just such box office in like the quotes term because he is just thinking I think at such a high level in terms of the movies he's trying to make and not compromising himself really at any turn it's so cool and in the process of nope of course he reunites with Daniel Kaluuya one of the, our great actors and he's great once again but Kiki Palmer is given this amazing opportunity to be a force of nature and she is on one this entire film the line readings the deliveries the physical performance as well she's tremendous um also Brandon Perea uh, really a newcomer on the scene makes a big impression but what's so cool about nope is it has all these social commentary thoughts that you expect from a peel movie after his first two works and a lot of that's presented through these flashback sequences regarding the chimp if you've seen the movie you understand and that's not actually the only thing about this movie though in the process nope is also it's a monster movie you think that a, a film about a flying saucer that these characters these characters discover would be like a science fiction movie but it's not actually that like it, the fact that the saucer is actually like a form of like foreign wildlife as opposed to aliens trying to touch down and do what they do was like a really i think a really smart choice and like the way where that goes and how these characters interact with this uh this beast is uh, really really thrilling to me and all the thoughts I think that can enter your head as you get introduced to Keith David's character and think about all the stuff with Steven Young's character and those flashbacks in the TV studio, right? Um, there's just a, so much going on there, but in the process, it's also still this really thrilling blockbuster film. And again, that just speaks to Peel's talent as a filmmaker where he can make these really convincing, thrilling set pieces, but also throw in such intelligence, such multi-layered, such also non-committal uh, commentary. Peel will never really point you in like the direction he wants you to think about. No, but that, to me, that's what's so cool about it, is that there's a lot of conclusions you can make, but the movie will never really confirm that that's the right read on how things are going. And I think that's just a really admirable way to make a super involved movie, the way Peel did with Nope. Um, man, I mean, we have no news on what his fourth film will be but obviously it's a must-see thing at this point that's no no hot take i mean i again i think my my ultimate takeaway with nope is that he still found a way to kind of subvert your expectations given the fact that we all went into nope expecting a really high standard but also expecting like a lot to happen and a lot to go on and a lot of thought to be put into it but he was still able to somehow surprise 
despite actually delivering on everything you expected. So hats off to Peel once again. And Kiki Palmer, she's not going to get Oscar nominated, but certainly uh, is worthy if we were doing like a you know a meritocracy type of approach to the awards. Coming in number three for me is The Northman, Robert Eggers' historical thriller action film starring Alexander Skarsgård and Anya Taylor-Joy. Man, I've been in the bag for Robert Eggers for some time. I had The Lighthouse on my 2019 list. I was going into the, quote, Robert Eggers Viking epic with a lot of hype and expecting to like it. But because Robert Eggers made this movie, Alexander Skarsgård as a Viking is so much more off the rails than it would have been with almost anyone else. I mean, you have, on one hand, a very familiar trophy story that you know well. Um, Skarsgård plays Amleth, a.k.a. Hamlet, and our, our journey of watching young boy's father gets killed by uncle, young boy plots his revenge later in life and returns to seek that revenge. You know that theme well, but watching Robert Eggers execute on that theme is just an absolute thrill. And <laughs> you have so many like amazing flourishes with these like dream sequences and um, more metaphysical things going on with a cameo performance from uh, Bjork of all people. You have young Amleth uh, like basically like do drugs as a rite of passage with his father Ethan Hawke very early on in the movie. Uh, there's all all these like big flourishes, but the action is so convincing and so I think so visceral, right? And uh, the, the tension, the period detail that Eggers really takes so much pride in is obviously so evident here in this movie. And you know, I think another thing that makes it a really cool choice that like, how Eggers uh, feels like something he would do that other people wouldn't do is that when Amleth, as an adult, when Scarja enters the fray, once he returns to finally get his revenge on his uncle, played by Clay Bang, his uncle is no longer the king after killing his father, the previous king. No, no, no. He has long since been deposed, and he has to go uh, sulk off in defeat and have a new life as a modest farmer. And that is the, the scene of where Amleth uh, plots his revenge, selling himself into slavery to then get close to his uncle to pull off what he needs to do. That's like an amazing choice, I think, to make it, in a sense, way less rousing on its face, but I think really grounds you in a very interesting like second act with the movie. And that's where we get introduced to Anya Taylor-Joy's character, who she's great as always. Not the best, like most fully realized character she's ever played, not her fault, but she still makes a great impression because it's uh, Taylor-Joy and she's that good. But I think the, the way uh, the North End really builds to its conclusion. It ends the only way it really could, but I think in a really triumphant and also incredibly cinematic way in terms of just amazing visuals really nails it. But to me, more than anything else, the reason why this stands above something similar is that because it's Eggers, you have all these crazy flourishes and you have this amazing tension to detail and you have these diversions that you go down and, and, and twists and turns that the plotting of the story perhaps wouldn't normally go that way in someone else's hands. And that's what makes him such a singular filmmaker and the fact that he was able to convince someone to give him this amount of money to pull off something this fully realized is amazing. And even if this movie perhaps lost 
uh, money, at least in the initial stage of the box office. I mean, how can how could you care? Because this is so singular and done so well and so thrilling. And I didn't even mention like you could if you take one scene out of this movie, you may take the uh, a marauder like blitz assault on that one compound where you get introduced to uh, adult Amleth, which is just the absolutely thrilling like fake one shot style action sequence that is visceral and gory and absolutely out of this world. It's just, I think, one of those movies that you see in the theater and it just kind of blows you away with the visuals and the just the sheer level of execution across multiple areas. It's just absolute thrill. And yeah, we know Eggers' next movie is Adaptation of Nosferatu. Um, and we should know more than anything else that Eggers won't do what you expect him to do, which is really cool. So yeah, absolutely love The Northman. Kind of feels like a while ago that this came out. That was back in the spring, one of the uh, first movies I saw uh, of last year that made my list. But uh, yeah, what a blast. And number two for me is Tar. Todd Field's first movie in Eons starring Cate Blanchett. Uh, man, talk about another movie that I went into with really no expectations at all. I knew Tar was really well liked. I didn't watch the trailer. I didn't really read up on it. I just wanted to go in. And, you know, oh, Todd Field, we haven't seen him in such a long time. He hasn't even made that many movies. What is Tar? And this, I, I struggled with this one. I almost had this one at one. And I really thought about it. And you can make a case for it being one. It's a lot of people's ones. Certainly deserving. Um, Tar is an amazing director's vision. And it really, I think, makes the viewer grapple with so many, so many like difficult and prescient themes, but it's not preachy and it's not heavy handed at all. And what it is, is I think just an amazing like way to bring you into this world and watch this person that you start rooting for. And then eventually you stop rooting for this person and you realize this person you're watching is not who you think they are and is not, even a good person at all and it really makes you kind of grapple with what you've been <laughs> spending time thinking about watching this movie it's so cool and i think right off the bat the reason this works so well is you're just thrown into this world and lydia tar as a character played by blanchette is just so fully realized right away lydia tar feels like a real person that's why there are <laughs> amazing you know parody twitter accounts of lydia tar because this you know world-renowned global composer uh, you know, leader of the orchestra character feels so real. And to watch this fictional, famous person go through what they go through and see that a movie, I think, really expertly present common debate, common treaded ground, you know, stuff like art versus artists, stuff like cancel culture. The fact that that kind of stuff can be in a drama film and not feel overwrought is I think really spectacular and Kate Blanchett is a lock to win uh, best actress at this point which would be her third uh, acting Oscar win and it's rightfully deserved because Blanchett is just an absolute inferno the entire time as Tar and it's crazy and watching Tar's downfall is just one of the best things I've seen this year because Field imbues so much uh, intelligence into this movie and is really just something that needs to be seen to be believed because 
and like Martin Scorsese, of course, recently really sang the praises of this film. But like, I think the intelligence that you see in Tarsh is not something that you get really anywhere else. I think the fact the fact that it can present uh, what it does without, I don't think, really like rubbing too many people the wrong way. Whether and it doesn't even matter what side of the fence you sit on these difficult topics, because that's not what the movie's here to do. The movie isn't actually there to comment on it. It's more about to present uh, compelling angles to both sides of it, as then you watch these things happen to Lydia Tarr specifically. And, of course, I think the Juilliard sequence, where uh, Tarr kind of goes off on this incredibly ferocious tirade against a student for having... Uh, differing views on the composer Bach than she does is an amazing sequence. And from there, I think watching watching the downfall, watching what happens uh, with Lydia is just spectacular. And again, hats off the field for having such a fully realized, I think, uh, creative vision with what kind of drama film he's trying to make. It's a movie that's not actually about uh, music at all but feels like such an intelligent movie about music at the same time. It's not a movie about fame, but it also kind of is. And that's what's so cool about, about Tar, man. It's, it's spectacular, and it's just so, so smart, and could easily be uh, my number one. However, Tar is not my number one. My number one is a movie I saw back at the end of March, Everything Everywhere, All at Once, from the Daniels, A24's multiverse extravaganza film. A movie that is surprisingly in the mix heavy for Best Picture right now. And I just remember this theater-going experience like it was yesterday. Just an absolutely convincing time at the movies. Like, the fact that the best multiverse movie ever made was just presented to us out of nowhere. as a completely original film. Uh, man... Hats off to A24 and everyone who financed this movie for giving the Daniels the wherewithal to really execute on a completely uh, unique vision is just so so thrilling and so heartwarming in terms of the filmmaking, the film going time we are in, where stuff that isn't sequels, stuff that isn't IP is rarer and rarer. But everything everywhere all at once, I think, proves that when you give artists the ability to actually cook, they will cook you up something amazing. And everything everywhere all at once works as well as it does due to the amazing grace that the ever-talented Michelle Yeoh brings to the character, uh, brings to the film as the lead character, Evelyn. And, you know, Yeoh, having the martial arts chops that you expect from a movie that gets into, like, really, like, you know, hand-to-hand combat and, like, action-adventure stuff throughout its whole runtime. But you have that, but you have, at the same time, Yo also bringing you her ama- amazing dramatic range to a character that goes on quite the emotional journey. You know, to some, maybe everything everywhere all at once is almost a bit too sentimental towards the end. But for me, I just think the way this movie goes across its journey, which in the process, again, is a wild, out-of-nowhere, like, in-your-face visual multiverse film, the fact that it's able to pull that off and, and and hit home the way it does at the end speaks to, I think, everything Yo brings to the character and brings to the film. And in a lesser lead actor's hands, it probably doesn't land as well as it does. 
on that same thought, um, her husband is played by Kihi Kwan, returning back to Hollywood. It's an amazing story. But Kihi Kwan as Wayman brings, I think, such true earnestness and kindness and, and to, to, to this character and their relationship in this movie as we meet various versions of these characters, as we traverse across different dimensions is so spectacular, but also so, so warm and so, so believable and so real, you know? And I think like the met, again, the meta version of this with Quan returning to acting and being in the mix for best supporting actor is so amazing and so well earned, but really these two performances carry this film. And once you get by that, you know, like, like they have like a, a obvious homage to Wong Kar Wai's In the Mood for Love. The fact that you're able to fit something in like that, and it's not even like a throwaway scene. It's like a true, like meaningful, dramatic scene in the course of the movie. The fact that you're able to have such a rich homage to a classic film, a film that just made the sight and sound polls top ten of all time. The fact that you're able to fit that in to a movie that also has butt plug jokes and hot dog finger jokes throughout again speaks to what the Daniels I think brought in terms of like a true vision, you know, Stephanie Sue as their daughter, uh, amazing breakout performance from her. She's really tremendous. And of course, Jamie Lee Curtis as well in a supporting role. The fact that all these, you know, these big four actors right here give multiple performances as they play different versions of themselves. It's, it's a really a, an action showcase, but the Daniels probably deserve a lot of the credit as well, just for having this amazing vision and convincing a 24 to let them pull this off the way they did. Um, I'm rooting for the movie to win Best Picture. Obviously, it's my number one, but I'm rooting for it because I think it's an amazing story that you could have such a crowd-pleasing but also so out there and so ridiculous film convincingly, incredibly win Best Picture. I think that tells an amazing story, and that's what you want uh, award shows to do in terms of uh, highlighting history for those to remember. So, yeah, it's a, I, th- I think it's just a really tremendous movie about family and the immigrant experience and love. And also, by the way, it's a multiverse, crazy, high on cocaine movie. Like it's so, so fun. It's so many things at once and really can't wait to see it again. Uh, so that's my top 10. Uh, so I'll just run through that real quick. Once again, that's at number 10 bodies, 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 number nine, RRR, number eight, triangle of sadness, number seven, Top Gun Maverick, number six, the Banshees of Inishirin, number five, broker, number four, Nope, number three, the Northmen, number two, Tar, and number one, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Now, obviously, I've seen about 100 movies this year. I'm still working on catching up on a few other things, but I've seen all the big stuff. In terms of honorable mentions, what just missed my list, of course, would be Avatar The Way of the Water. Avatar The Way of Water. That's number 11 for me. Tough Cut, a movie I really adored. Uh, adore. I've seen it twice in the theater. Absolutely love it. I'm happy it's doing so well. And I think that's just a Amazing theatrical movie-going experience. James Cameron did it again. Um, in terms of other honorable mentions, I have Damien Chazelle's Babylon, uh, uh, Park Chan-wook's Decision to Leave, Bones and All, The Fablemans, Glass Onion, The Menu, uh, Prey was a welcome surprise, The Predator prequel, a um, bunch of other stuff as well. I will be posting my full list, ranked 1 to 100, whatever, whenever I get to a few more things I haven't seen yet. I'll be posting that probably early February, and I'll, I'll link that in the show notes. I'll tweet that out at Martin Swagger. But that list will be on Letterboxd. So check that out if you want to see the the full ranking. I will tell you the worst movie I've seen this year so far in Dead Last. 
would be Judd Apatow's The Bubble, which I thought was absolutely horrendous. And there's been other stinkers as well, so wait for the long list. But that's my best movies of 2022. Let me know what you thought of my list. Leave a comment below. Tweet me. What were your best movies of 2022? What did I skip out on in my top 10 that should have been there? What uh, what pick do you completely disagree with? Let me know whatever you thought. Obviously, everyone has a top 10. They're all different, but they're really fun to think about. And even in a year that I would say is slightly down year for movies in terms of overall uh, span of films, uh, I still think it's pretty compelling top 10 no matter where you look. So let me know what you thought. And for more movies, uh, subscribe again. I'll see you next time. Yeah.